It's One Louder Podcast. Your host, PJ Pat, has done absolutely nothing that you would know about. But don't fret. PJ Pat's passion for rock, hard rock, and heavy metal will no doubt please all headbangers as he explores the world of the modern rock star from a musician's perspective. So turn up the volume one louder and enjoy the show. Hello, all you rock fans out there. This is PJ Pat and my sidekick Carl over here. And like many of you, I've been a rock Part fan of guitar-oriented music for a long time now. Pretty much since the 90s, that whole grunge movement, I was a sucker for that. I got just right into it in deep. And I have a, a bunch of really cool vintage magazines, guitar magazines, being a guitar player myself. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to share with you some articles about amazing bands and amazing albums um, that I really enjoy reading. So I figured if I enjoy it, there's at least got to be three people of you out there in the world that do. So this video is for you three right there. Um, and in today's video, I'm going to talk about this amazing album by the Smashing Pumpkins called Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Obviously, for those of you who are 90s nuts, rock nuts this is such a staple for that era i don't want to classify them as grunge but just it holds itself um you know for that for that era and arguably one of their best albums ever so we're going to talk about this and we're going to read an article from alternative guitar magazine and believe it or not this is the uh third uh third release of this magazine right here and it was uh, released in 1996 and i'm going to read an article uh, where um, Guitar, I believe it's Guitar School, Guitar School magazine, um, interviewed uh, Billy Corgan, obviously singer, main songwriter, and guitar player of the amazing band Smashing Pumpkins. And it was written by Andy Allidort, and the name of the article is called Orange Crunch. Before we jump in, I just want to warn you, it's a pretty technical article. Um, it is really written for guitar players because there's a lot of figures and a lot of like tabs that show you how to play certain parts. He talks about specific parts of the song, what kind of equipment he uses, how they recorded it, how did he get certain sounds, um, and working with the producers, how they came up with that. Um, so it's fascinating if you're a musician and a guitar player. If not, there are some really juicy parts too, and it'll, I'm sure it'll give you a whole different perspective for you to enjoy the album that much more. So here goes. Join Andy Allidort and Smashing Pumpkins' visionary Billy Corgan as they examine the finer points of melancholy and the infinite sadness. In recent months, Smashing Pumpkins' melancholy and the infinite sadness has administered a chokehold on the rock and roll universe, demonstrating in no uncertain terms the band's far-reaching scope and ferocious power. Pumpkin Patch leader Billy Corgan, the group's primary songwriter and guitarist, leads his cohorts. James Iha, guitar, the Asian guy. Darcy, bass player, the chick. And Jimmy Chamberlain, a phenomenal drummer. On a vast excursion of sound, styles, textures, and emotions, and in doing so manages to surpass the formidable music mastery of 1993's multi-platinum Siamese Dream. By the way, I added the Asian guy, the chick, and phenomenal drummer part, in case you're, you're wondering. So no offense to Andy Allidort's writing. Okay, continuing on. The skull-bashing metal of Where Boys Fear to Tread, Tales of a Scorched Earth, 
and hit single Bullet with Butterfly Wings is tempered by the hypnotic pop of 1979 and the ethereal beauty of In the Arms of Sleep and by Starlight. There are even a few tunes like Porcelina, of the Vast Oceans, and Through the Eyes of Ruby that effortlessly incorporate all of these disparate qualities. Toss in the undeniably anthemic grandeur of Here Is No Why and Muzzle, personally my favorite song, and you've got one of Rock's great achievements. Below is a first-hand analysis of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness with the main man himself, Billy Corgan. Really cool. And there's a cool picture of kind of Billy Corgan in the shadows there. Pretty neat photography right there. All right. Okay. So, Guitar Schools asks, What kind of equipment did you use for this album? Billy Corgan replies, On much of the album... I use my old 1984 Marshall JCM 800 100-watt top, which is my favorite amp. It's on every Pumpkins record. Well, well, well. If you wouldn't believe it, but it's I got the JCM 800 lead series from the 80s right here, right behind me. Wow, that crazy coincidence right there. I bought the amp with a 4x12 bottom. I don't even know what kind of speakers are in it and use the bottom for most of the guitar tracks. Um, my my other, other main rig is a Marshall JMP1 rack preamp, which goes into an LSS compressor and then into a Meza Boogie 500 head. The Meza is 400 watts per side in stereo. The coolest thing about the Meza is its half amp thing, which allows you to cut the wattage in half. That helps the way the sound hits the power section of the amp and gives it a certain kind of compression, which sounds really cool. I like the amp's presence control too. Power amps don't give you much in the way of controls a lot of the time. But I don't use a Meza in stereo because, because I, I think stereo sounds like shit. What songs use these different amp setups? So Corgan replies, Jelly Belly is a good example of the Marshall Rack and Alessis Compressor guitar sound, which is the basic fat rhythm sound I use. I use the JCM 800 for almost all of the overdubs on the record. That's the JCM at work when it kicks in real heavy at the 23rd second mark during Through the Eyes of Ruby. That amp has a certain cut to it that sounds great. Because of the tonal differences between the two setups, I tend to use the JCM 800 more for the leads, solos, and overdubs than for rhythm. Using the two setups together makes the different guitar parts work better together to sit better. On Siamese Dream, I did everything with that JCM head and so it was harder to get tonal differences on each guitar part. Did you use any other guitar amps on the record? On To Forgive, I used a Fender Bassman that I bought during the recordings of Siamese Dream. It's an old fucked up amp, one of those silver face models from the late 60s or early 70s. I paid to get it fixed, but it still doesn't work right. The amp makes this weird sound like a storm is coming. While we rehearsed the song, the sound got worse and worse, and then started to go away, at which point we started to record. Right about the time we did the take that's on the album, the sound started to come back. If you listen closely, you can hear a little bit of the storm sound coming again. Is it like that low rumble? No, it's more like... Like something's definitely wrong with the amp. I've had problems with this tubes going harmonic, but this is something else altogether. I've tried kicking the head as hard as I can, and sometimes that makes the sound go away, but other times it makes it worse, so you have to know when and how to kick it. 
how do you play the verse figure on to forgive? Okay, well, it, it starts to get a little technical here. Um, so to spare all the non-guitar players, I'll skip this part. There's a bunch of figures that kind of show how to play certain parts. Skip, um, skip, skip. Here we go. Did you use any other unusual amps for certain tunes? Not really. I can pretty much get everything I want from my rack setup. James has a Fender Twin, which he used on some tracks for cleaner tones. Come to think of it, we did use a Vox AC30 on a lot of tracks. It's a 64 that someone lent us, and it sounds fucking great. I used it on Tonight Tonight and By Starlight. At the very end of By Starlight, there's a feedback and octave thing that I do, beginning roughly at the 412 mark, and it's just me standing in front of the amp and cranking it up. I double-tracked it, so I'm getting different feedback on each track. It was difficult because I wasn't used to playing with Vox feedback. It was hard to get the guitar to feedback in the range I wanted. When I went back and double-tracked it, I went for feedback in a higher range, which created weird dissonance when I put the two tracks together. How do you play the intro and verse sections of Tonight Tonight? Okay, so a bunch of other technical stuff, guitar playing stuff. Um, They have like these figures that show tabs on how to do it. I'll skip that part. Uh, Guitar School says, Tonight Tonight has a wide range of cool guitar tones on it. Billy Corgan says, The Vox has a lot to do with that. Also, when I used that amp, I mostly played a 72 Gibson 335 instead of my standard 57 reissue Strat. Is that 335 the same guitar that's in the Bullet with Butterfly Wings video? No, Billy Corgan says. We rented the 335 in the video because I didn't want to fly mine out to LA where I was going to be jumping around in the desert all day. I bought my 335 at Grun Guitars in Nashville, the same place where I picked up a 1928 National Steel that I'm in love with. I swear I'm going to learn to play slide on that thing. I like the 335. It's the only non-strat guitar that I really enjoy playing. Can you use it for the really loud, heavy tunes, even though it's a semi-hollow guitar? Corgan says, yeah, I'm fine with it. I can get that Ted Nugent double live gonzo sound. No problem. Sometimes when I'm playing the 335 on stage, I'll go into Nugent's strange hole because the tone is exactly the same. The band always gets a big kick out of that. Do you play that guitar on any other songs? Right now, I'm just using it for Tonight Tonight, though I'll probably start using it for other things too. It sounds real good on Bullet. Speaking of Bullet with Butterfly Wings, can you explain the different sections of that tune? Sure. The verse section is based around a droney chord shape. Okay, more technical stuff, showing all the chords. Okay, we'll skip that stuff and we land on this question. Are you happy with all the guitar sounds on the record? Corgan says, yeah, I am. For the next record, though, I'm planning on not using any of my own gear. I want to force myself to get a totally new sound. I'm going to dismantle the rack and start over. Did you use any other non-strad guitars on Melancholy? On Where Boards Feared to Tread, I used a Les Paul Jr. reissue. I really like that guitar a lot. It's got a fat sound. Through the rack setup, that thing sounds incredible. That song has a pretty crazy beginning. That's part of a sick jam we were having. The song is mostly just a pretty simple riff played over and over. We cut that one live, and the take on the record is the first time we ever played the tune together. All the changes in the song are totally off the cuff and were singled by me via making singles and faces to the bands as we played. Oh man, that's just amazing. I mean, that's 
that's kind of how you have to do it sometimes, you know? Um, you know, compared to, I think, Music Today, that's so calculated, that's so on the click. It's so refreshing to read how they used to do it back then. Uh, so, okay, back to the article. Guitar School. It's interesting how at the very end of the song, you unexpectedly return to the lick one more time. A similar little extra piece thing happens at the end of Love. The thing with Where Boys was that when we got to the last note, which we hold, I singled Jimmy to come back in on the riff. I wanted him to end it exactly as it ends on the record, but he played through it, so we had to edit it later. Did you and James have a basic guitar setup that you used for most of the record? Yes, most of the time the guitar combination was my 57 reissue Strat and James Gray Sunburst Les Paul, which I think is from the 80s. That's the one that stays in tune. He's more sentimentally tied, however, to his black one, which won't stay in tune for anything. We call that the Gish Les Paul because it's on so much of that record. While we were recording Gish, we had to continually punch in because if the low chord voicings were in tune, then the high voicings would be out of tune. It drove me fucking nuts. There's nothing I hate more than an out of tune guitar. What makes that super high pitch sound that goes through We're Boys beginning at the 45th second mark? Corgan says, I was playing with the Ebo. Um, so an Ebo is a handheld magnetic device that causes individual strings to sound without being picked, creating a bowed violin effect. Sending the guitar into a harmonizer program and Flood, the producer, Flood, was manually changing the oscillation with his finger. He was actually performing the guitar part with me. That's kind of cool. Are there any other electrics on Melancholy? I use the 74 Strat, commonly known as the I Love My Mom guitar. That guitar has since been painted baby blue. Um, I used it on the main rhythm part of Muzzle through the rack setup. That's a fantastic guitar sound. Corgan replies, yeah, the guitar is made of heavier wood, so it's got that basic Strat sound, but with more bottom, more of a low-mid kind of a sound that's really nice. It sounds good for certain songs. I played that guitar on Bullet too because it has a little more chunk on the bottom end. It's a pretty technical interview, as you can tell, definitely for guitar players versus, you know, your casual fan for sure, or even your obsessed non-musician fan. Here's an interesting question. At the end of Fuck You, it sounds like you're bending the neck of the guitar backwards, raising the pitch of the held chord. Corgan says, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's a funny story because when I recorded the rhythm guitar tracks to Fuck You, it was the first time I tracked with the album's co-producer, Alan Mulder. Flood, who I'd been tracking with, had left town. I, re I recorded the first rhythm track and did a little neck pull at the end. Then I did the other track without listening to the first track, which is how I always do guitar double tracking. At the end of the second track, I pulled the neck again and said to Alan, okay, watch this. Then I played them both back without the drums and we listened for discrepancies. Alan absolutely could not believe that I did the neck pull, out of time no less, at exactly the same moment. It's kind of a tribute to Alan, really, because I did it to freak him out. I've double tracked for so long now that I know all of the, my little idiosyncrasies i knew from the feel in my body when i do the pull did you use any 12 string guitars on the record i use an 80s 12 string fender a bit on the end of beautiful for this walking guitar line it's hard to pick out though you can hear the guitar most clearly when the song switches from the middle eight back to the normal part of the song at 
2 minutes and 41 seconds. What's the deal with the acoustic guitars? Corgan says, that's a good question. James has a bunch of good acoustics, a Gibson, a Takamine, and a few others. I just grabbed whatever was around. He has a 12-string acoustic, I think it's a Gibson, that he tuned to the Nashville tuning. So just to explain what the Nashville tuning is, it says here, it's achieved by removing the regular strings on a 12-string, leaving only the higher octave strings for the 6th, 5th, 4th, and 3rd strings. The 1st and 2nd strings are unisons, so they stay in the same octave. That's some crazy, pretty crazy stuff. Uh, okay, so we use that tuning on the 33, and it might be on Take Me Down or Farewell and Goodnight. Stumbleline, Stumbleline? Stumbleline is a demo that I recorded at my house. I play my Ovation Acoustic on that one. What's that, unusual about that riff is that the octaves are played on the A and B strings with the open D and G strings ringing in between the octaves. In general, pretty nonchalant about acoustics. I have a 62 Gibson Southern Jumbo that I write on a lot, so I always leave that at home. A lot of the record was written on the Southern Jumbo and, and the piano. I bought the Jumbo at a place called Black Market Music in San Francisco. They have a lot of guitars hanging on the ceiling, and they have a great collection of pedals too. James and I used to always go shopping for guitars together, but then he got worried about trying to beat me to the guitar stores. I'm generally pretty nonchalant about acoustics. I have a 62 Gibson Southern Jumbo that I write on a lot. I also always leave that at home. A lot of the record was written on the Southern Jumbo and the piano. I bought the Jumbo at a place called Black Market Music in San Francisco. They have a lot of guitars hanging up from the ceiling, and they have a lot of great um, collection of pedals too. James and I used to always go shopping for guitars together, but then he got weird about trying to beat me to the guitar stores. We played a gig in San Francisco recently, and I went down the black market and saw a nice guitar. I said, maybe James would like this guitar, and the salesman said, that's funny, James was just here. I go, he was? Did he buy anything? And the guy says, yeah, he bought a 62 Strat for 3000 bucks. Look over here. And they already had a fresh Polaroid of James holding the guitar, making a funny face, stuck up on the wall. And I was like, fucker. <laughs> what was your favorite songs from Melancholy? And Corgan says, it pretty much changes all the time. I just took a driving trip and listened to the whole album for the first time in a couple of months. And stuff jumped out at me. That hadn't before. Like Tales of a Scorched Earth, which is just a bit of a teenage nihilism. When I recorded that song, I had mixed feelings about putting it on the album. But when I got away from the intellectualizing and just listened to it, I enjoyed it. It's total bombast. Within the context of the whole record, it fits nicely. It's a nice opposing ice cream flavor. My favorite songs are always the ones that are closest to me personally instead of what may be the best musical song. I usually don't like the singles as much, but I do like 1979 a lot. How did you get those unusual voicings on the chorus of Tales? Corgan says, I overdubbed an unusually tuned guitar part on the chorus. The G string goes up one half step to G sharp, and the high E string goes one whole step to F sharp. Then the guitar is run through a kind of envelope filter, so it sounds strange. There's a lot of different things going on during the bridge. There's a regular bass. There's a Fender P bass played with a pick, playing a different line and sounding like a six-string bass. 
There's a few guitars played through envelopes. I'm not sure what that is, actually. And there's a real scratchy guitar, too. There are about six or seven different instruments happening in there. Wasn't 1979 one of the last songs written for the album? It was the last song. I was writing songs while we were making the album because I felt it was incomplete. We wound up with over 40 songs, so we'd have what we called hatchet sessions. We had all the song titles up on a board, and we'd stare at them for hours saying, this has got to go. It would get pretty brutal. I demoed out the basic music to 1979, and we practiced it a few times. Flood wanted to take the tune off the board so we wouldn't spend any more time on it, but I said, let me have one more day. I went home and wrote the whole song that night, words and everything. The next day I came in, played the new demo for him, and he said, that's it, it's done. That demo is still floating around somewhere, and it's pretty damn weird. 1979 has a real immediacy to it. There's just something about the riff and the vocal. The singles are always like that, though. They come to you pretty fast. It's funny because that melody is the very first melody I sang against the riff. Sometimes I have to mind the melody. You have to dig around until you find something good and solid like Today and Disarm from Siamese Dream. Those were the first melodies I ever sang against the chords. And when you find melodies like that, everything seems to just fall into place effortlessly. It's as though the song is already written and you're just trying to find a thread. It's a weird feeling when you hit upon that. Are you ever inspired to write something by the sound of a certain guitar? Corgan says, I've pretty much gone away from looking for a sound to inspire me. The one song on a record where that happened is XYU. There was something about the main lick that was very menacing, so everything I wrote around it goes with that same menace. It's a live take with the whole band playing in the same room, loud as hell. Okay, Guitar School asks, one of the hallmarks of your rhythm guitar style is your incorporation of smooth voice leading, in quotation marks, chords that blend into each other because of closed voicings and shared tones. Is that something that you are consciously aware of? And do you use it as a tool in writing guitar parts? Corgan says, I love that kind of thing, and I am always looking for ways to make it happen. I, I use that technique in the middle eight of 1979 and in the verse section of Love. That's one of my favorite things to do. I like the way the thirds of all the chords shift around. Cheap Trick uses that technique a lot, and so did John Lennon. I don't know if I picked it up from listening to them or if it just came naturally. One of my favorite things is to come up with a certain voicing or chord shape that I can slide around on the neck. That's what Ruby is based on. I also do a bunch of that on In the Arms of Sleep, which is in an unusual tuning. The G string is tuned up half a step to G sharp. On Pisces Iscariot, there's a song called Obscured, which utilizes the exact same chord shape, a first position C shape with the fifth, G, included below the root of the sixth string, slid all over the neck. The only problem is that by the end of the song, my hand is killing me. Ruby has an amazing number of guitar overdubs, Guitar School asks. At one point, there are 56. How do you accumulate so many tracks? Billy says, a big part of it is that James and I did tracking for the same song in different rooms, so that while I was working on writing and arranging, he'd lay down all of these different ideas. Then I'd go through them and say, I like this, I don't like that, and I'd make suggestions. He'd get something happening and call me when he was ready. Then he'd tweak the sound and execute the part. We'd also leave spaces open for where I was going to add my guitar parts. It was very piecemeal. 
We've done this stuff long enough so that our minds work towards a common goal. It's not like James is going to go in some direction that ultimately won't serve the common purpose. Do the overdubs cause problems in recreating those songs live? Billy says, yeah, they create a lot of problems. We do what we can, you know. We're long past the notion of getting hung up about it. A song like Sherb Rock on Siamese Dream has some really good choice overdubs in it, but the song is just as effective live in a different way. We just try to go with it. Sometimes we try to approximate the studio version, and sometimes we just don't give a fuck. And that's it. That's the end of the article right there. So hopefully you enjoyed that. As you can see, it was very technical. I mean, for guitar freaks like myself and hopefully some of you, um, that adds a really interesting perspective. Actually, right now, after I edit this video, I'm going to go and listen to the whole album again, um, knowing what I've read. So I'm sure some of you will do the same. Um, hopefully it gives you another perspective of the album and uh, just a greater appreciation for it. As you can see, there's a lot of work that's put into these things, and it's just really interesting to see how our masterpiece is made from the artist himself. All right, so hopefully you learned a thing or two about this amazing album. Go back, crank it out loud with some devil horns up in the air. Rock on. I'll see you in the next one.